Well, hello, Journey. How y'all doing? It's great to see every single one of you. I've missed you sincerely, and it's really, really great to be back with you. Uh, we are indeed launching Jesus for President this weekend, but before we dive into the scriptures together, I have a couple of Journey family things that I'd invite you to be thinking and praying and even working on with us. The first one is very, very personal to me and to the Hopkins family. I just thought, though, that you'd like to know. This upcoming Wednesday morning at about 8 o'clock in the morning, which happens to be about 11 o'clock Tuesday night here in Bozeman, uh, our family, uh, some of us anyway, will be in Ethiopia picking up our daughter Addis. And well, there she is. Hmm. <clears throat> Uh, we'll go on Wednesday morning and pick her up from the orphanage there where she's been living for some time. And we'd just be really, really grateful for your prayers over all that, for her transition into our family, her transition into our community, into her school, for her English. She doesn't speak any of it. And uh, so prayers over that especially would be fantastic. And I want to just say from a real soul-level place on behalf of the Hopkins family, thank you. Thank you so much to every single one of you who helped make bringing her home possible. We're just so overwhelmed with gratitude, and so is she, frankly. Uh, we cannot wait for you to meet her in just a couple of weeks from now, though when you meet her then, her name won't be Addis anymore. Uh, she really likes the name Kinsey, and so she'll be Kinsey Addis Hopkins from here on out, and... Uh, it's kind of cool when your kids get to pick their names, isn't it? That doesn't always, I didn't get to pick my name. And uh, so it's kind of fun when they get to. We just covet your prayers over all that as we go get Kinsey this week. And that leads into this reality that around this place, if you're new around here, if you're not familiar with how we think and sort of how we function around here, we feel really, really strongly that God's directives to us, the Church of Jesus Christ, about caring for orphans and widows are not optional. We just don't get to sort of clip out those parts of the Bible and go, yeah, that was for another time, another day. It's for us, and it's for us now. And so we're trying to take God's commands in that realm real, real seriously. I think we are. And uh, to bear that out, there's about 17, 17 families across the Journey family who we know of who are in some process of adopting. Lots of those kids are coming home from Ethiopia, some from other places internationally. Some are being adopted from right here in the United States. We love all that. I know uh, Daniel and Jamie Herzog just brought their son, Wandamagen, home yesterday. As a matter of fact, I saw him out in the lobby but just before we started in here. What a precious little kid. You ought to go say hi to Wandamagen. What a great kid. And we think all of that is really, really close to the very heart of God himself. This adoption deal, this widow care deal is really close to the heart of God himself. And so Journey, I tell you, way to go and keep that up because there's millions more orphans to go, right? Million, I mean, millions more, and some of you need to adopt some of them. No pressure. And then there's this. For the past six years of Journey's life and existence, really since the beginning, since we started, uh, this past Tuesday marked kind of a big day in the life of our church. For the previous six years, the day after Labor Day, that Tuesday morning, we would snail mail those invitation postcards to about 40,000 households in the Gallatin Valley, inviting our wider community to join us for a new ministry season that kicked off on that upcoming weekend, which happens to be this 
weekend. How many of you remember us sending those postcards over the years? Yeah, like seven of you. Good job. Glad we sent them. We've actually done two a year uh, since we started. One right now, one around Easter. Now let me ask this. How many of you even noticed this week that you didn't get one of those postcards like you usually do? Yep, like three of you. There you go. Four. You all win prizes. See me afterwards. I'll give you a, a prize. I'm telling you, you didn't get one because we didn't send one. We didn't send one this year. For the first time in six years, we didn't send one. And here's why we didn't send one. Because I haven't led our church well in that regard. Like I should have. Now, let me sort of unpack what I mean by that. By us sending those postcards out two times a year, by us sort of corporately inviting our whole valley to get connected with God via our church, we've actually been robbing you of part of the mission that Jesus has given you as a follower of his. We've been stealing part of the mission of Jesus Christ to you, to every single one of us. And you're like, oh gosh, stealing is bad, isn't it? It is bad. See, part of Jesus' mission is for every single one of us, not just a few, but every single one of us to be inviters, to be spiritual conversation starters with people, to share our faith in Jesus Christ with people around us. And I haven't challenged you very well. I haven't challenged you very hard. I haven't challenged you very often to be an inviter, to be a faith sharer. I haven't challenged you very well on that front. I haven't challenged you very well to be a person who shares your faith in Christ and invites other people to make the same decision that you made. I haven't led you well, and I'm asking you for your forgiveness, and I'm telling you I'm sorry, and I'm stomping my foot and saying that's changing from here on out. Things are changing. And I'm not saying we're not ever going to send another postcard. We'll probably use them in more targeted ways from here on. But really, at the crux of this shift is that we're called by Jesus for us, our lives, all of us, to be the invitation. And it isn't just about coming to a weekend worship experience. I think that's a part of it, yes. But every single day we're called and invited and exhorted by Christ to be the invitation to the gospel of Jesus Christ by the things we do and by the things we say, everything we do and everything we say as a matter of fact. And so here's the challenge. It ends in a challenge. And I'm going to tell you right up front, it starts very simply. We're going to ease into this, okay, so we're not going to shove into this, we're going to ease into this, and it starts here, just be here next weekend. That's easy enough, isn't it? Like, just be here next weekend. We're going to have a gift, we're going to have some instruction that's going to help all of us be the invitation in the lives of our friends and family and coworkers and so on. Uh, This fantastic statistic landed on my ears a few weeks ago. 80% of first-time guests to a weekend worship experience like this one show up because they were personally invited by someone. Great number. However, the downside of that number is that typically only 1-2% to of us are actually inviting friends and family and neighbors and coworkers to a gathering like this. 1-2%. to That's bad, isn't it? And we don't want that stat to describe us. We don't want that stat to describe our church. Because you see, when we're inviters, God shows up, doesn't he? When we're inviters, God does stuff. God changes lives. God breaks in and breaks through. Watch and listen to just one example of how God worked in a guy named Craig's life when someone invited him right here. Watch this. The first time I ever walked on a journey was actually for a first aid training sometime last year, not really knowing what was there, what the church was about, or what kind of... um, 
church it was. I had always been raised in traditional churches, very structured. Um, we attended churches throughout my life, but they were, all, like I said, they're all very traditional. And we hadn't really had a church home for quite some time. After Christmas, we decided it was time to, to find a church home. Some friends of ours had mentioned that, you know, the journey was here and that we might enjoy the experience there. We started attending on a regular basis. Sometime in late March, I attended a Saturday night service by myself. My family was out of town. And I don't really remember what the message was about, but I remember Brian saying, forget all the peripheral stuff, do what's really important, and if you're running from God, stop. I thought, you know, he's, he's talking to me today. And I had been running for a very long time. At that moment, I had this incredible sensation or feeling come over me that, you know, everything's all right. And, and the emptiness I'd been feeling for well, a long time, it was gone. So right then and there, during that quiet time that we always have every worship experience, I committed myself to God. Um, this is really the first time in my life that I've had this kind of relationship with God. I've never been this close. And understanding the sacrifices made by sending his son to die for our sins. So every day is an awesome walk with God. Um, I've never had these feelings or this closeness I feel with him. Um, understanding, you know, sending his son to die for our sins. Um, the incredible feeling I get, I get it again and again, you know, depending if it's a worship service or somewhere else. It, it's fantastic. And, you know, with me coming to Journey, was certainly God bringing me to Journey. And with Journey's help and the great people there, um, I'm closer to God every day. See what I mean? Craig's life is different today because someone stepped out and boldly invited him. They invited him. And look what God did. Saved him, redeemed him, set him on a new trajectory, an eternal trajectory. And what's true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is way too valuable for us just to keep it to ourselves, isn't it? So please, please, please be here next weekend. We'll have some stuff that's going to help all of us walk out this part of the mission of Jesus Christ. And I'm just thrilled, excited beyond measure about how God's going to use all of us going forward. All right, Jesus for President, launching the campaign today. Jesus for President. If you've got a Bible, John chapter 18 in your text. If you have one, if you don't, you can follow along on the screen with me. And it's really obvious that it's election season, isn't it? That's kind of like a duh, right? You just about have to be living in a cave or under a rock to have missed that it's election season. It's like everywhere, election, 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 getting screamed at us. Yard signs are starting to grow up like weeds. TV and radio signals are clogged, jammed with campaign ad after campaign ad after campaign ad. At the Hopkins house, we just a few weeks ago got a live TV signal. For about the last 16 months or so, we haven't watched any live television at all unless we were somewhere else other than our house. We watch shows and movies on Netflix or Hulu over that span of time, but we haven't watched any live sports, any live news, any live television, uh, period. We just didn't want to do it, and I didn't want to get an antenna, so we didn't want to do the cable thing, I didn't want to do the antenna thing, and so we just didn't, and well, look, 16 months later, I'm still alive. I survived no television. Uh, but then this little thing called football season was coming, <laughs> right? And uh, my Niners, right? Go Niners, God's team. Uh, that's bad. And I'm totally kidding, by the way. 
But I wanted to watch the Niners, uh, we wanted to watch the Olympics, and so we got cable television and we could watch TV. And I still, to this day, weeks later, haven't watched all that much television, but I'm telling you, what I did watch caused me to be overwhelmed and astounded by the sheer quantity of campaign ads. Like, one after another after another, and like my head spins and spins and spins. You open a newspaper, election. You hit news websites, election. It's all the latest updates from the campaign trail everywhere you go. The two major national parties, as we all know, just wrapped up their nominating gatherings. And we're being blitzed with ads and news and polling data and sound bites. And it isn't just the presidential election, the senatorial elections, the House elections, the gubernatorial election. How would you like to be running for a gubernatorial office. What a word. It's like overwhelming, isn't it? And I'm telling you this, you ain't seen nothing yet. Ain't seen nothing yet. 58 days to go until election day and campaign fervor in those 58 days, especially the campaign for the office of the president of the United States of America is going to ratchet up and up and up and up and just hold on to your hats because you ain't seen nothing Now, these election cycles can be particularly confusing and challenging for people who follow Jesus, can't they? Lots of us think we have the take on how Jesus would approach solving the major issues, major problems of our day, but it kind of gets all jumbled up, doesn't it? Jesus and a whole bunch of his followers get real politicized, it would seem. One blogger wrote this, Jesus would send all those right-wing pseudo-Christians straight to hell. Not my words, blogger. Another blogger writes this, I can absolutely prove beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus was a Republican. (laughs) Blogger. John Ortberg, in his most recent book, Who Is This Man? A fantastic read. I highly recommend it. It's a book about Jesus. Ortberg notes that it's Jesus who changed everything in history. Here's what Ortberg writes. He's history's most familiar figure. His impact on the world is immense and not a coincidence. And yet, Jesus did not ever brashly defend his movement in the spirit of a rising political leader. He didn't do it. Now, to be absolutely sure, Jesus might, and I mean might, commend Democrats for their concern for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the disenfranchised, for the outcast, the very people who he reached out to again and again during his life and ministry here on earth. And Jesus might, and I mean might, come in Republicans for their focus on personal accountability and responsibility, the things he espoused over and over again during his ministry. But these days to listen to many politicians and partisans and pundits on both the left and the right, you'd think that Jesus is like one of their own, right? And I think Jesus is kind of calling a time out saying like, wait a minute, not so fast. Not so fast. Because see, no political party gets to co-opt Jesus Christ and suggest that he's only on the left or only on the right. No politician gets to co-opt Jesus Christ and say he's only on the left or he's only on the right because you see, after all, it was Jesus who said this from the Bible. These are his words. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And that's Jesus Christ, crystal clear, straight from his own mouth, stand against any political party, any political movement, any candidate who attempts to take him over and call him theirs. 
Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, not on my watch, no way. And that verse is just one little part of one little verse inside of this very big drama that was unfolding near the end of Jesus' life. That when you sketch the whole thing out, paints a picture of just how emphatic Jesus was about the true way of his kingdom. Let's tease it out together. John 18, starting in verse 28. We're just going to take these in chunks. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them. They wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So here's Jesus. We know he's been betrayed by one of his own followers. He's been arrested by the Jewish religious authorities. He's been taken to the high priest of the Jewish faith. That's Caiaphas. And he was put on trial, kind of a sham trial, if you could even call it that. Now Caiaphas and his cohorts, they were a group that made up what's called the Sanhedrin. They were Israel's highest court. But even still, they did not have the right to administer capital punishment. They couldn't do it. Which meant that if those Jewish religious leaders wanted to off Jesus, which, by the way, they really wanted to off Jesus, they had to get some help from Pilate, the Roman governor, and so they take him there. Pilate's the governor of the Judean province in Israel. And they take him there, and they make much, the Jewish religious leaders, of this ritual purity thing, don't they? So much so that they won't even go inside of Pilate's house, inside of his headquarters. Why? Because if they went in, they would, they would then become ritually unclean, based on the Old Testament purity codes. You've read about those, I'm sure, in the Old Testament of the Bible. Here's how you stay clean, here's how you get clean, here's how you get dirty, and all that kind of stuff. And they're adhering to this strictly, especially during the Passover. So because of that, Pilate, he's got to let go in and out of his headquarters in order to interact with these Jewish religious leaders. So these guys, they're all caught up in ritual purity, and they won't even go inside this guy's house. And isn't that just a bit ironic? Quite a bit ironic, actually. These Jewish religious leaders, supposedly the benchmark of righteousness and holiness purity and so. They're so concerned with being contaminated by a Gentile, they won't set foot inside the residence of one. Yet what are they doing all this while? Why do they even go to see Pilate? Because they're plotting the death of an innocent man, Jesus Christ, claiming he's an evildoer. He did wrong. So they're all caught up in ritual purity. We can't get dirty. We can't get contaminated. But we want to kill Jesus, an innocent man. The very man who really made his entire life just one long protest against evil, didn't he? And they want to off him. Quite ironic. And so they go see Pilate and he comes out to meet them. He has to go outside to meet them. I'll bet he's grumpy about that. Like, I'm the governor. You're going to meet me. You come in to see me. But he has some grace and goes outside And here's what the Bible says. And he asked them when he goes out, what is your charge against this man, against Jesus? Here's how they answer him. We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal. Just take our word for it. This guy's a criminal. And so then he says, well, then take him away and judge him by your own law. Don't involve me. And then they counter. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone And they're telegraphing like, this is a really big deal. He's really bad. He deserves to die. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he 
would die. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with the Jesus gig. Your charges against Jesus, he says, are meaningless. This is like an inner Jewish squabble. Just go handle it. Deal with it. Get him out of here, please. I want to go back inside. The Jewish religious leaders are like, uh-uh. Stakes are real high here, governor. Capital offense we're talking about. Capital offenses required the governor's personal involvement. And so what's Pilate do? He's like, okay. So he goes back into his headquarters and he calls for Jesus to be brought to him. They don't care about Jesus' ritual purity. He's like, bring him in. And look what he asks him right out of the gates. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And he's getting to the bottom, isn't he? Pilate's digging, digging, digging. He's trying to get to the bottom. And that question, are you the king of the Jews, is pregnant with political intrigue. Because see, that title, king, hadn't been ascribed to a Jew in the land of Israel since Herod the Great, a long time ago. Rome wouldn't stand for it. They wouldn't allow it. And so Pilate's driving, he's driving, he's mining, he's digging, because he's trying to determine what level of political threat Jesus might bring against the Roman Empire. Is this guy going to overthrow the Roman Empire? Is he going to upset the Roman Empire apple cart? Is he some plotting some political sedition of some kind? Is he just another in a long line of Jewish terrorist revolutionaries who has a vision of messiahship and a cohort of well-armed followers behind him? And look what Jesus says to him. Like, Pilate is expecting an answer, right? Are you the king of the Jews? Look what Jesus' reply is. Is this your own question? Or did other tell, others tell you about me? It's always fun when you answer a question with another question. Jesus is masterful at it, isn't he? He's like, Pilate, somebody must have told you something about me because I'm guessing you didn't just arrive at that on your own. And then Pilate says, am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? He's like, I, I'm not even, I shouldn't even be involved in this. I don't even buy all this. Jesus probes, he pushes. He really turns the tables on Pilate, doesn't he? Pilate's supposed to be the one asking the questions, and then Jesus trades places with him, and Pilate, he's not fond of that. In the first place, he doesn't like that he's being pressured to evaluate Jesus. He doesn't like that it smells a lot like he's being dragged into some silly Jewish theological squabble. But at the end of the day, if it's kingship that's in view, Pilate's got to make the call. Is Jesus the kind of king who would threaten Rome's empire? Now, every single other place in the sacred text where this account is recorded, Jesus before Pilate the first time, Jesus simply replies to Pilate's query by saying, you say that I am. Are you the king of the Jews? And it's like, you say that I am, which is kind of like Jesus' way of saying, all right, you've given me that label, but I'm not gonna ascribe any meaning to it whatsoever. You're saying it. We do that sometimes, don't we? Like people say something, they give us a label, they tack us with something, and we're like, you said it, not me. You said it, not me. I'm not going to affirm anything about that. I'm not going to claim it, I'm not going to deny it. Now, something just a little, little bit like this happened to me right after our last presidential election, 2008, if you recall. I happened to be in Ethiopia on election day, 2008, when President Obama was elected. We had flown through the night on election day and we hadn't yet heard the outcome by the time we got there. So 
we hustled straight off to our hotel room in Addis Ababa and flipped on CNN and heard for the very first time that Obama was elected president. And just as a little rabbit trail here, being in Africa, being in Ethiopia at that time was an incredibly unique vantage point to observe how the African people viewed us in the United States electing our very first African-American president. They were ecstatic, to say the least. They were like partying in the streets and Obama books and shirts and bumper stickers for sale everywhere, streets and shops all over Ethiopia. It was like, wow, it was something else. So I was there for some days, and at the conclusion of my trip, it was time to go home, and so I went to the airport so I could leave. And one of the last acts, you know this if you've traveled internationally, one of the last things you have to do before boarding your flight to go home is clear immigration, right? Well, in Ethiopia, immigration consists of standing in a line several hundred people deep, waiting for one of the way too few immigration officers. There's like 300 people in line, and like maybe on a good day, two immigration officers, and you're watching your watch, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss the plane, and so you just wait and wait and wait, and you're just biting your tongue, biting your tongue, you're getting so impatient, I'm kind of a type A, and so getting grumpier and grumpier, and so finally you make your, I'm trying to be a good boy and like maintain my salvation and stuff in the line, and so finally it's my turn, and I get called up so the man behind the glass can stamp my that's all they do. They look at your passport, they stamp exit, and then they send you through. I'm like, what? Why? Why does that matter? But anyway, you have to. And so the gentleman calls me up. He takes my passport. He notices that it's a United States of America passport. He says in very broken English, mind you, Obama, you're president. And he's like having a celebration behind. He hadn't celebrated for anyone else, but he was celebrating with me. He was very enthusiastic about Obama being our president. And uh, I had been gone for a week or so. I wasn't sleeping very well there. And I don't think I looked enthusiastic enough for this man. Because he squinted his eyes real narrow and he pointed like, mean, you vote for other guy. <laughs> All I could say was, how do you know? Like having an argument. How do you know? Like you said it. You say, how do you know? I don't think it's in my passport, is it? Maybe the chip in there tells everything. (laughs) Conspiracy theories abound. You said it. And that's what Jesus does with Pilate. You said it. Every other account in the scriptures, he doesn't confirm, he doesn't deny this king of the Jews title that Pilate accuses him with. But here in John, John gives us a glimpse. Jesus treats it. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. There it is. And that's Jesus saying loudly and clearly, no politics here. No politics here. My kingdom doesn't come from Jerusalem My kingdom, as a matter of fact, didn't originate even here on planet Earth. My kingdom is not in rivalry with the Roman Empire, nor its head Caesar. And Jesus says, I'll prove it to you. And here's how I'll prove it. My followers, they're not going to fight. They're not going to fight against Rome's rule. That's the proof of Jesus' otherworldly kingdom source. It's born out in the behavior of his followers. Today, that's us. But Pilate doesn't, Pilate doesn't like that answer. He, he, he presses him. He's like, we're going to keep 
drilling here. Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, here it is. This is what we see in all the other accounts, the synoptic gospels. You say, I am a king. You said it. And a really great paraphrase of this exchange is Pilate saying, so you're telling me that you're indeed, after all, some kind of a king. And Jesus is going, king is your word, not my word. You said it. And so at the end of that little exchange there, Jesus has finally unpacked everything that his kingdom isn't. Like, finally, he's done. And now he can cross the line, and he can get to what it is, and Jesus does. And here's what he says. Actually, I was born, and I came into the world to testify to the truth. Interesting. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And this is a very postmodern question, what is truth? Pilate asked, was postmodernism around 2,000 years ago? Here it is. What is truth? What is truth? My kingdom, Jesus says, is a kingdom of truth. The kingdom of truth, capital T. My mission started not in this world, it actually started in heaven, the Christ says. And he says, I came to this earth for the express purpose of unveiling the truth, capital T, to the world. Now that doesn't mean Jesus came to like call out true, false, true, false, true, false. Rather he's saying, I simply came to reveal God's voice and reveal God's word, truth, capital T. It's this theological view of God whereby he is truth, and we would say that, wouldn't we? God is truth, capital T. He's the yardstick of truth. The standard bearer of all truth. And Jesus says, that's me. And then inside of that exchange, this is amazing. Jesus is very, 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 very subtly inviting Pilate to something. What's he inviting him to? Join me, Pilate, would you? Join me in actually working for the truth, capital T. Join me. Come on. Come on. And like we would all say, every political leader would always say, of course I'm working for the truth. We all want to be on truth's side. But Pilate's very postmodern question back to Jesus, what is truth? reveals the real posture, the real position of Pilate's heart. I'm not down with truth. Not down with truth. I'm not in and down with the things of God. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do everything possible to avoid the blinding light of the truth, capital T. I don't want anything to do with God. Uh Uh-uh. And so then Pilate goes out again. And he tells the Jewish religious leaders and all the Jewish folks gathered there, he is not guilty of any crime. Whoa. Strong statement. He is not guilty of any crime. But you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover, during the Passover celebration. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Remember, Pilate wants to wash his hands of Jesus. When he says... Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? He's mocking Jesus. 
there. He's like, this king of the Jews thing, it is a joke, a farce, a hoax. I'm so frustrated I got sucked into all of this. Just, will you take him away, please? And they say, "Huh, uh We don't want him. Instead, we want the guy who is the threat to Rome. We want the guy who has proven capability to challenge the military occupation of Israel. We want a man who has demonstrated tendencies toward violence and government overthrow. We want Barabbas. Come on, let him go, please. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom isn't playing on this level, he's saying. My kingdom is not of this world, and in the church and in Christianity, we really want his kingdom to be of this world sometimes, don't we? It'd be real great, as a matter of fact, lots and lots of days If it were, if we could just institutionalize the kingdom of God through major channels of power, places like governments and political leaders and nations, that would make everything all better. We could just legislate the kingdom of God down from the highest offices in the land. That'd be awesome. Be awesome, some of us say. But Jesus calls, whispers, invites us back to this truth. My kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is not of this world. Which means that Jesus' way, the authentic way of Jesus, is not found in any political movements, nor in political candidates, nor in political parties, not even in a certain system of government. And here, Christians, is our challenge. We must, especially in days like these, push back against any and all attempts to politicize Jesus and or his kingdom by those who try to put a D or an R or even an I in front of his name. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he is not partisan. He is not partisan. I see, one day Jesus told the story about how his kingdom was going to come, how it was going to unfold. You probably recognize the story. It starts like this. One day a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and what happened? The birds came, and they ate it up. Free seed. Birds are happy. Some of that seed fell on the rocky places. It didn't have much soil there. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Bummer. Other seed fell among what? Thorns, remember the story. Those thorns grew up and choked the plants. They they were growing. They were on their way, but then the thorns, they got bigger because they were there first. And and then almost like, can you still believe, even after all those bad things happened, there's still more seed, Jesus says. Still, other seed fell where? Good soil. Good soil. And in that good soil, it produced a crop 160, 30 times what was sown. And with that story, by that story, Jesus is telling us, he's shouting to us, I'm very, very aware of the quote-unquote impossibility of my kingdom coming in this world. You think, he's saying, that it's not going to come at all. 
But it is. But it is. And Jesus reminds us, some of the kingdom of God's seed grows in unstoppable fashion, 160, 30 times what was sown. That's miraculous reproduction. But Jesus says, I get it. From your perspective, it's not going to work. It isn't going to happen. Because all we see is this frightening smallness. All we see is the hiddenness, the tininess of the kingdom of God's breaking in and breaking through, the kingdom of God's launching its beginning. And that doesn't even take into account the power of the opponents who threaten the kingdom of God from start to finish. Jesus said, it's not like you think it's going to be. My kingdom is not of this world. The work of God in the world isn't about politics. It's not about political will. It isn't about the use of force. It isn't about violent revolution, coup d'etat. And so, instead, the kingdom of God, get this, starts ever so small, tiny, like a seed, the kind the farmer throws out, and it just silently grows. And absolutely, it faces myriad setbacks. But then again and again and again and again, it wins the day. The kingdom of God wins the day. How? Through the hearts and through the lives and through the words and through the deeds of we who call ourselves Christ followers. It's coming through us. It isn't coming through Washington, D.C. It isn't coming from the highest offices in the land or the lowest offices in the land. It's coming through us and it's breaking in and it's breaking through through us. Jesus for president isn't about any of us, me, any of our other pastors, our church, telling anyone how to vote. Uh-uh. Jesus for presidency is all about us individually as well as a wider church community being rightly calibrated by and toward the way of Christ. That's what it's about. It's the way of Christ. The way of Christ in every single thing we do. Every single thing we say, every single thing we think, all of it, submitted to the rule and to the authority and to the lordship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we take our cues from Him, not anybody else. I'll bet if you've been paying any attention at all to the media in this election cycle, you've heard more than one pundit Talk about how, see, raise your hand if you've heard this. This is the most important presidential election in our lifetime. Have you heard this? Yeah. I've even heard some of them, show of hands if you've heard this one. This presidential election is the highest stakes election in the history of the United States of America. Have you heard? Yes, absolutely. And you know what that is? That's the pundit's way of saying that the very biggest deal going on planet Earth is what goes on in Washington, D.C., And I'm saying, no way. Not a chance. My kingdom is not of this world. The very, very, very biggest deal going on in Washington, D.C., going on in the United States of America, going on in Bozeman, Montana, isn't the electoral outcomes there. It's us, you and me, every single one of us, being caught up and being swept away and being fully engaged in nothing but the way of Jesus Christ. It's him. It's only him. It's you and I bringing the kingdom of God. It's you and I telling others about the kingdom of God. It's you and I inviting others 
to come into the kingdom of God because of everything that Jesus did for them on the cross. That's it. It isn't about the Oval Office. It's about your office and your classroom and your workplace and your back fence with your neighbor who's living life far from God today. It's the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking through through us. Small, tiny, scary small. But it's coming. And Jesus says again and again and again, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not coming like you think it's going to come. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. invite you to think on these things with the Lord press in with him let him speak to your heart God, I pray for us one by one by one by one as well as us as a wider unified community that you would rightly orient and rightly calibrate our hearts toward you, toward your kingdom. Your kingdom about which you declare it is not of this world. And God, I pray for us that when we're tempted to try to bring your kingdom through some other means, some way that you don't intend for it to come, that you just stop us dead in our tracks, that you'd arrest us with this truth that it isn't like we think it's going to be. That it doesn't matter how much political might, how much political power how much political money. It doesn't matter. Because your kingdom overwhelms and blows away all of that. Catch us up, God, please, in your work. May our hearts be entirely swept away, given over to, ordered around this most important thing going on planet earth which is your kingdom coming bring it through us and God I pray that we would be bold about that unashamed as we live a life that honors you as we live a life that points people toward you and as we tell people about you and invite them to make a decision give us boldness give us wisdom God give us opportunity Today, give us opportunity for your gospel to be spoken from our lips, every single one of us, please. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us recognize those opportunities and not let them get by us. Your kingdom is not of this world. It isn't like some of us hope it'll come. It isn't like some of us think it's gonna come. 
because it's coming right through us. And we're surprised every time it does that we get to play such a dramatic part in the unfolding redemptive narrative of you, God, Savior of the world, King of kings, Lord of lords. It's you we worship with our whole lives, God. Catch us up. In Jesus' holy, precious, risen name, we pray this and everyone agreed and said,